couple weeks ago, my mother-in-law was in town, and because of that, Samantha and I took an opportunity to have a date night. It was the first date night that we were able to have without taking Crew with us. So Crew is our newborn. He's about four months old now, and so we've gone out a couple times and just taken him with us. He's relatively easy to take care of. He sleeps a lot in his car seat. But we had an opportunity to go without any of the children, which was a great treat. So we, we went downtown, and we, we ate at a restaurant downtown, and we had a wonderful meal. And we were done, when we were done eating, usually what we'll do is just go straight back to the house and relieve the babysitters. But because this is grandma or nanny who's watching the kids, we figured we'd give her a little extra time with them and allow her to have some more fun. So we just decided to start walking downtown. We don't get to do that very often, and so we just started walking. And there's a place downtown called the 21C uh, Museum, but it's also a hotel. So you can stay the night there, but they have a museum, and it's free to get in. So you don't have to pay entrance to get into this museum. And so we happened to come upon it, and we decided we'll go in and we'll check it out. We haven't been down here in a long time. So we go in, and we're walking around. They have lots of different exhibits, and some are just really interesting, really strange, not really understanding what I'm supposed to be feeling or, or thinking as I look at this, but there was one that really stuck out to me. It was a really, really large uh, wall, and it had these little like buttons and bottle caps and just lots of random items like glued to the wall. And when you step back and see the whole thing, you see that it's a face. It's all put together so that it looks like a person's face. But when you're real close to it, you can't see the face. You can't see the big picture. You just see all these individual items that are glued to the wall, and it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. But as I looked at that, well, to be honest, I didn't think much about it at the time. I started thinking more about it as I was in this passage and thinking just in general about Revelation. But it made me think of a photo uh, Hold on, mosaic, mosaic. I almost said mirage, but that's not it. A photo mosaic. And maybe you've seen these before where someone will take a bunch of individual photos and put them together, and when you back up and look at the whole thing, it makes one other photo. And so I have an example for you. I'm gonna ask them to put this up on the screen. Uh, so this is an example of a photo mosaic. Now what you're looking at here, you might not really know. Uh, there's clearly a hockey theme, all right? There's this individual, Henrik Lundqvist, who is a great, uh, great goalie for the New York Rangers. He's retired now. But basically, there's a lot of just random people in their pictures, either with their Rangers gear on or with him. And so that's kind of cool. But then when you back up, you see the bigger picture. It's all of these individual photos of people and how they've been rooting for the Rangers or been rooting for him or they've met him in some way, but they've put all the pictures together in such a way that it's a picture of him. And the Rangers did this as a way to honor him as he retired. And it's neat, it's cool to think that people were able to submit their own images to be a part of this big picture. But if you zoom in on this, it kind of makes sense. You kind of get a little bit of what's happening. But it's really when you zoom out that you see, ah, I see what this is. It makes far more sense to me. And the same way with that art at the museum, I think right here in the book of Revelation, there's so many times where we get bogged down in the details 
of what we read that we miss the big picture. Ian Duguid is, uh, he's a professor of Old Testament, but he has studied for many, many years on apocalyptic literature. And he says this about it. He says, I think often we get too caught up in the details. Think about an impressionist painting. If you get too close, all you'll see is dots of color. You have to step back a bit and see the whole. In the same way, if you get too close to apocalyptic literature and too focused on the details, you'll miss the whole thing. We don't want to miss the big picture of Revelation. We need to be reminded every time we come to the book that this is a letter that is written to churches who are being persecuted. And the purpose of the letter is to encourage the churches. So we need to keep that in mind as we read the book of Revelation because we come upon things like what we're going to read here in chapter 11 that just seem really strange and confusing and how does this, how do we make sense of this? But it's important that we keep the big picture in mind. Read with me. You got your Bible. Revelation 11. We're going to start at verse 1 and we'll go down through verse 14. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire." And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up into heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake. And a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Like I said, there are some things here in the book of Revelation that are odd, that are strange, and that we really need to deeply at to make sense of. To remind us that the context of where we find this passage is right before the seventh trumpet is blown. 
So going back a little bit, you'll see that we've seen the first six trumpets are blown. And there's this pattern in Revelation, Josh mentioned this last week, that there are seven seals, and then there are seven trumpets, and then there are seven bowls. And the first of the six are all opened or broken or poured out or blown, whatever it is, in relatively short order. And then there's an interlude, and then the final one. And you see this with all the different things. You see this with the seals. First six are open, and then there's an interlude, and then there's the seventh. You see this with the trumpets. The first six are blown, then there's a long interlude. And that's where we are in this passage. And right after this passage, the final trumpet will be blown. But you'll see the same thing happen with the bowls that will be poured out. So as, as a reminder, the first six trumpets have been blown, and the seventh is about to be blown. And it's in between here that we find this passage. I only have two points for you this morning. The first, both of them are a little long. The first is, it is through the ministry of the church that sinners will be spared from judgment. I'll repeat that again. It is through the ministry of the church that sinners will be spared from judgment. The first thing that we see here in chapter 11 is that John is given a measuring rod. Verse 1 says, I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise, measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So the first thing we see is that John is given this measuring stick in order to measure the temple of God. Now we see this later here in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 15, it says, And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. A few verses later, it says, verse 22 through 27, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light, the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. You see, this angel comes, measures the new Jerusalem, the city of God, and we read in here that there will never be anything detestable or false. It will be protected by God. There will no longer be any sin or suffering in the new Jerusalem. And so this idea of the temple being measured is this idea of God will protect it. You see this again in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel, you can read about this in chapters 40 through 48. We're not going to read all of that. But we also see an example of this in Zechariah chapter 2. And I do want to read this. The first couple of verses of Zechariah 2 says this. And I lifted my eyes and I saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him. And he said to him, run. Say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And verse 5 is key. 
and I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. So it's the same picture. The city is being measured, and what's happening in connection with this measurement is God is saying he will protect the city. So when we read this in Revelation 11, we understand that there's this picture of the temple being measured as a way of God saying he will protect his people. God is going to protect his people. And just as we saw previous in Revelation 7, we saw that there are angels who, an angel comes with the, the stamp of God or the, the sign of God, and he is uh, doing this to the people of God. Revelation 7, verses 2 and 3 says, I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who'd been given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their forehead. So we see in, verse, in chapter 7, God is sealing his people to protect them. We see in chapter 11, God is measuring his people in order to protect them. But this protection may not be what you think it is. Because when we hear that God is going to protect us, our first thought is nothing will harm us. There will be no bad that comes to us. But that's not necessarily the rest of the picture that we're given in Revelation 11. He says, not to measure the court outside the temple, leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, if the measuring of the temple is symbolic of God protecting his people, it seems that this trampling of the holy city is also a reference to God's people enduring persecution, hardship difficulty in this life but he says in verse 3 and I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth now we're going to get into what are these two witnesses here in just a moment but notice that there are two time frames given here the first is how long the holy city will be traveled and it's 42 months 42 months is three and a half years the second time frame that we're given is this 1,260 days, and that's the amount of time that these two witnesses are going to prophesy. The average months being 30 days and divided out, 1,260 days equals 42 months, which equals three and a half years. So it seems that the time of the holy city being trampled or God's people experiencing persecution coincides. It's the same amount of time with the, the amount of time that these witnesses are going to be prophesying. One thought as to why they're uh, measured in different ways is when we think back on like World War II, for instance, we talk about the years that World War II occurred. We don't talk about how many days it lasted. We talk about, well, it lasted a couple years, right? The early 1940s. But when you think about prophesying or preaching, or being evangelistic. That is something that happens on a daily basis. This is something that should be done regularly each and every day of our lives. So it seems the trampling is referred to as, oh, that's just that general, the trampling that's going to happen is a bad thing and it's gonna last for quite a while. But this prophesying 
of these two witnesses is a daily occurrence happening for that same amount of time. Now, we get into verse four and we get into some interesting imagery here. Uh, Verse four starts by saying these, so it's referring to the two witnesses, are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And so we've got to ask ourselves, well, what in the world are these two witnesses or who are these two witnesses? I'm just going to tell you that I do not believe that these are two literal witnesses that will come at some point in the future. That is a popular interpretation of this passage. People believe that at some point in the future there will come two actual witnesses and they will be in Jerusalem. And I I just want to say this morning, I do not think that that is what this passage is meaning. And here's why. Notice what he says in verse 3 about these witnesses. The first thing he says is, I will grant authority to my two witnesses. I will grant authority. This sounds very similar to the Great Commission. And in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And based on that authority that Jesus has, he is then sending out his disciples. He says, based on that, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's the same idea. Jesus has authority, and he is now sending his people out based on his authority. Here in Revelation 11, I will grant authority to my two witnesses. But also, in Acts chapter 1, we have basically another version of the Great Commission. And here's what Acts chapter 1 says. This is verses 6 through 8. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So it seems Jesus saying here in Revelation, I will give authority to my witnesses coincides with the Great Commission, Jesus having authority and sending out his followers. And in Acts chapter one saying, you, referring to his followers, will be my witnesses. There's another thing that we notice is that there's two witnesses And it's a common theme all throughout the Bible. There are many verses, I'm just gonna read you two of them, that talk about the fact that we should not confirm anything except on the account of at least two witnesses. One of those is Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. It says, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. The other one, a New Testament example, is one maybe you're familiar with. Matthew chapter 18, in the context of church discipline. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So there's a theme in the Bible of two, at least two witnesses to confirm things. But I think maybe the strongest 
support for these two witnesses not being literal witnesses, but rather being symbolic of the church, is the passage that we read for our scripture reading. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out 72, and he sends them out in pairs. He sends them out two by two. And he says to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Clearly, the picture is there are plenty of people that need to hear the gospel and believe, but there are few people to be sent out to do that work. But he also says, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Sounds reminiscent of the nations will trample the holy city for 42 months. I think, based on the rest of the Bible, that these two witnesses are not two literal witnesses that will come at some point, but they refer to the church as a whole, to the ministry of the church that God has given us. From the time of his ascension to the time of his return, I believe all of that is symbolically here as these two witnesses. They have authority, they prophesy, and they're clothed in sackcloth. Now, clothed in sackcloth also has significant Old Testament imagery. Oftentimes, it's related to repentance and mourning. You see this oftentimes in the Bible. When someone uh, is confronted with their sin, they respond with repentance and they will put on sackcloth because the message that these witnesses are bringing to a lost and dying world is one of judgment. And to escape judgment, you must repent. That's the message of these witnesses. But verse four continues, and now we have this image of these two olive trees and two lampstands. Again, there are four things mentioned here. They are Old Testament references. We don't have time to look deeply at all of them, but I just wanna mention to you what they are. This is a reference to Zechariah, and you can read about this in Zechariah chapter four, but basically what's happening is Zechariah receives a vision in which two olive trees are on each side of a golden lampstand. And what's happening is these olive trees are providing oil to keep the lampstand lit. And in the context uh, that God is supplying both the king and the, the high priest who are supporting against enemy opposition, the rebuilding of the temple. And so what God is saying is I've got these two individuals that I've put in position to allow the temple to be rebuilt, even against enemy opposition, okay? Next, in verse five, we see, if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. This is a reference to Jeremiah chapter five. And in it, Jeremiah, uh, it says, Jeremiah 5, 14. It says, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth a fire, and this people would, and the fire shall consume them. Next, in verse six, we see they have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. This is clearly a reference to Elijah and the prophets of Baal. You can read about this in 1 Kings chapter 17. And the book of James actually refers to this and summarizes it by saying, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, have we heard that before? It did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again 
and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. But also in verse 6 we read, And they have power over the water to turn it to blood and to bring every kind of plague on the earth. I think we know what this is a reference to. I talked about this just a few weeks ago from Revelation 9. It's a clear reference to Moses and the plagues that were brought onto Egypt when God was delivering his people from slavery in Egypt. So we have these four images, the olive trees, the fire from the mouth, power to shut the sky, and the water to blood and plagues. So the question is, what in the world do they all mean? James Hamilton, in his commentary, says this. Let's put the meaning of these four images from the Old Testament together. The olive trees symbolize the spirit empowering the church. Because olive oil is associated with anointing, and anointing is associated with the coming of the spirit. The fire that consumes enemies symbolizes divine protection for the church. The power to shut the sky points to demonstrations that Yahweh is the only living and true God. And the ability to bring the plagues highlights the church's ability to liberate people from bondage through the proclamation of the gospel. The church then is powered by the Spirit, protected by the Father, and able to liberate people through the gospel of Jesus Christ. These images that we have read, these Old Testament images, to just read them by themselves is, is hard to understand. This is one of the reasons why we get caught up in the details and we don't see the big picture. Because my first instinct when I read these things is to, th to, to sit back and say, what in the world? But to see all of the Old Testament imagery and to be reminded that the church is empowered by the Spirit, that it's protected by the Father. We just read about that with God measuring, uh, the angel measuring the temple. And with the ability to liberate people through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that sounds awful similar to what we know as the mission of the church. That is what we are called to do as the church. And so we've got this picture of two witnesses which is very reminiscent of scripture all over the place. And they are prophesying. And as they do, they're facing opposition. They're facing persecution. And we can look at the church all around the world, even today. And we see that there are countries that hate Christianity. There are countries that absolutely despise God and anything related to him. There are countries where if you are found out to be a believer, you will be imprisoned, if not put to death. There are countries where missionaries have been found out to be believers, and they are kicked out of the country and never allowed to return. There is strong opposition to God, to his people to the mission that he has given his followers to do. And I believe what we're seeing here in, Re in Revelation 11 is a picture of exactly that. Jesus himself told his disciples in John, he said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 
Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. It seems that this protection that God gives us may not be the protection that we want it to be. Because oftentimes when we think about persecution, we think about hardship, what we want is a promise that that will never come to me. What we want is a promise that that will never affect me. But that's not what the Bible promises and that's not what God promises. We need to remember that we are sent out by Jesus lambs in the midst We need to remember that we are not a club. We don't put our dues in the offering plate, and that's how we continue our membership. We are a church. We are people bought by the blood of Jesus, and we are then sent out by him to be witnesses to him to a lost and dying world that is hostile to us. That is the mission of the church. That is what we are supposed to be doing, and it's easy for us to get caught up into doing churchy things and to do the things that we've just always done because it's tradition, because that's just what it means to be a church. That's just what it means to to be involved. It's easy for us to forget that our purpose is to be witnesses in the midst of a hostile world and that we have been empowered by the Spirit we are eternally protected by the Father and that we have the, the, the message of the gospel to liberate people from bondage just as you and I have been liberated from bondage. This is the picture that we see of these two witnesses. So the church... It's through the ministry of the church that sinners are spared from judgment. But the second point this morning is that the time of the church's ministry is limited. The time of the church's ministry is limited. Look with me at verse 7. Talking about these two witnesses here. And when they have finished their testimony, we are told in verse 3, that they will prophesy for 1,260 days. We understand that breaks down to a three-and-a-half-year period. I think it's a literal three-and-a-half-year period. I think what that shows is the time between Jesus' ascension and his right before his return. But verse 7 is very clear that the time of the church's prophesying will come to an end. When they have finished their testimony, now here's what happens. The beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of that great city that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound a whole lot like conquering to me. When you go back to the letters, Jesus says in every single one of them, to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. To the one who conquers, I will give him the secret manna from heaven. 
to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the house of my God. You can go back to the letter, chapters 2 and 3, and read that. It doesn't sound to me like being slain and killed by the beast is conquering. One of the things we need to keep in mind is that the way that we think about conquering and victory is not always the way the Bible describes conquering and victory. When we think about conquering and victory, think about, well, I think about the New York Mets winning the last game of the season. That's victory, right? You've won the World Series. You're the champs of the entire baseball league. Still waiting for that to happen in my lifetime. But that's how we think of victory, is that we are seen clearly by everyone looking as the victor. But here in this image, a beast rises from this pit and conquers the saints, conquers these witnesses and kills them. And they lay dead in the street. Now, it says that that great city symbolically called Sodom in Egypt where their Lord was crucified. We need to understand why is this city referred to as Sodom in Egypt. James Hamilton continues in his commentary and says, identifying Jerusalem with Sodom associates Jerusalem with an adulterous city that came under God's judgment. And identifying Jerusalem with Egypt associates it with a country that enslaved the people of God from which God delivered his people. This is a symbolic or spiritual identification. Jerusalem is not literally Sodom and Egypt, but Jerusalem has come to play a role in God's purpose that is similar to the role played by Sodom and Egypt. Places judged by God, places from which the people of God were delivered through judgment. Notice how much the world hates the church. Look with me at verse 9 and following. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Now, I don't know how many funerals you've been to, but I've never been to one where people are cheering and giving presents. Usually we do not associate death with cheerful things. But yet the death of these two witnesses is causing the world to celebrate. This is how much the world hates God and hates God's people. In Psalm 2, we read that the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart. See, Psalm 2 reminds us that the world hates God and hates his people. But Psalm 2 also says that the Lord sits in heaven and he laughs. Because all the efforts of the kings of the earth, all the efforts of the nations to destroy God and his people will not work. They will be thwarted. And what we see here is in verse 11, but after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And their enemies watched them. 
You see, the picture does not end with the beast killing the witnesses. The picture ends with after three and a half days, which should remind us of Jesus, our Lord, who was in the tomb for three days, that after three days, Jesus was raised from the dead. And after three and a half days, these witnesses who appeared to be dead in the streets will receive a breath of life from God himself, and they will return to life. You see, this protection that we are promised, both in chapter 7 about being sealed by God on the forehead and being measured by God here in chapter 11, this protection does not refer to you and I not facing any hardship or struggle or even death in this life. It refers to the ultimate death, the second death. You and I, as followers of Christ, will not be harmed by the second death. You see, the beast looks victorious here. It looks like the beast is the one who conquers. But the reality is, just as Jesus was raised from the dead, you and I can know that we also will be raised to new life. We will be more than conquerors through him who loves us. In verse 13, and at that hour, there was a great earthquake Tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed, in the, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Just because they gave glory to the God of heaven does not mean they repented and believed. You look back at King Nebuchadnezzar; he gives glory to God over and over again, but is not believing. You see, the world or the nations who thought that they had victory over God and His anointed are realizing their defeat. They are realizing that all their efforts to destroy God, to destroy his people, they have failed. They have fallen short because God is victorious. The church will be victorious. We need to know that. We need to be reminded of that because we need to zoom out sometimes because we get so focused on 2022 and all the things that are going on and, and these things that we got going on over here and these programs that we're trying to do and these Bible studies that we're trying to get people to. We get so bogged down in the daily routine that we forget the big picture. That, hey, even if we face opposition in this world and we are put to death for what we believe, that does not mean that we did not conquer Conquering is keeping our eyes on the Lamb. Conquering is being faithful even unto death. To the church of Smyrna, Jesus wrote, Satan is about to throw some of you in prison and you will have tribulation for a short time. But Jesus will deliver us from that. Even if it costs us our life, we are conquerors. So we can say with the Apostle Paul this morning from chapter 8, maybe one of the most amazing, wonderful passages of Scripture in the whole Bible. Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. This picture of these two witnesses is meant to show us a picture of the church. Us, right now. And to conquer does not mean that we sit on a top of a pile of bodies and say, yes, we did it. Sometimes conquering means laying down our lives for the sake of trusting Jesus. Jesus said, they've hated me, they're going to hate you too. But Jesus has sealed his people. Jesus has measured his people. He will protect his people. We have nothing to fear because we know that God will take care of us. We know that we do not need to fear the second death. God will save us. And as we are confident about that, it empowers us to go as lambs in the midst of wolves. It empowers us to go take this message of reconciliation because what we know is judgment is coming. The seventh trumpet is about to be blown. And when it is, that's the end. There are no more chances for repentance. Let's be a true church. Let's be reminded that our focus is to reconcile sinners to a holy God. That's what's happened with us. Let's take that message to the world. God, we thank you so much for this vision in in Revelation chapter 11. God, I pray that this would be a helpful passage for us to see that you have given your church the power of the Spirit, the protection of the Father, and the message of reconciliation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would strengthen us, empower us, that as we see this big picture, that we would be reminded that conquering may look different from what we anticipate. But we know you are faithful. We know you are trustworthy. We know that our lives are in your hands. So God, we pray that you would use us. Use us as your church to bring the gospel to many people that many people would come to faith in Jesus because we were faithful to proclaim it. God, thank you for this picture. We ask your blessing on our study as we continue to go through the book of Revelation. These are heavy truths that we read, but we are thankful that you've revealed them to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.